when you're ready. Let's start this game. Welcome to BCPLN Stacked and Let's Unwind with New York Times bestselling author Marie Bostwick. Let's see what Marie is reading all about her recent book release, The Restoration of Celia Fairchild, and her Listen While You Stitch campaign. Marie is represented by Magic Time Literary Publicity with Kathy Clemens Bennett. A big thank you to Kathy for helping build strong author connections with the Northwest Regional Library System. Hey, this is Sarah. And this is Stephen from the Bay County Public Library. Hi there. Hi, how are you? Good, good, good. The first question is, would you introduce our listeners to your new title, The Restoration of Celia Fairchild? I would love to do that. Um, So yes, The Restoration of Celia Fairchild. It is about, unsurprisingly, a woman named Celia Fairchild. She is a syndicated advice columnist who is really very popular. And she is very wise and very funny and very caring and very good at giving advice and she has phenomenal insights into other people's problems. She is less insightful about her own issues, which I feel is kind of like everybody's thing, right? So um, the action starts, as the book opens, Celia is living in New York and she is just coming, kind of starting to get the recovery point after a very disastrous and incredibly unwise marriage that she sort of really knew wasn't gonna work out, but Celia wanted a family. So she thought this was her chance. Well, it didn't work out. She's kind of getting back to it. And suddenly as the book opens, Celia discovers that she is one of three people who are being considered to adopt a baby. An answer to a dear birth mother letter she'd written a long time ago. So this starts the beginning of a series of events that is going to, in fact, take change her life, obviously, and take her back to Charleston, South Carolina, where she grew up and um, that she left 15 years before, or maybe it's 20. It might be 20 years before. It's been a while since I actually worked on the book. Where did you uh, begin developing the plot for this one? You know, it's, it's really hard to pinpoint uh, a time. People always say, where did you get the idea? I mean, it came from a lot of, of places, I suppose. I, I'm somebody who, for reasons which are utterly unclear to me, people have always asked me for advice. People tell me their stuff. Sometimes perfect strangers will be, I'll be getting a pedicure. This is a thing that actually happened one day. I was getting a pedicure with a pedicurist that I'd never met before. And she was doing my toes and suddenly looked up at me and she says like, I don't know why I'm telling you all this. I never tell people my stuff. And I said, that's okay. It happens to me all the time. And by the way, yes, you should leave him. So that's just been kind of my life. Now, I am really not so good about giving good advice to other people. So I think that's why I've always been intrigued by advice columns. I wonder if those people are really, you know, do they have it as together in real life as they appear to? If they're like the rest of us, the answer is no. So there was that. Um, but I had long wanted to set a book in Charleston because I just I just think it's one of the most beautiful cities in America. I did I've lived all over the place, including the South. Never had the pleasure of living in Charleston. But if I ever win the lottery, there's a carriage house on Trad Street that has my name on it. So there it is. So I related to your book uh, with the bringing a group of girlfriends together to do various needlework projects. I'm the embroiderer, my sister's the knitter. 
um, and she's really good at it. And um, another aspect I really enjoyed was the multi-generational friendships between women, including Felicia, who felt like she was one of the few remaining in her generation. What made you pull those two elements together in your book and any reflection on your real life quilting or friends groups? Well, in fact, this is these two elements are are things you're going to find over and over in my work. Um, you know, they say everybody really only has one story to write. You just figure out different ways to say it. And I certainly have revisited those two issues. Multi-generational casts of characters have played a role in so many of my books because I think it's important. Um, I need to have younger people in my life and I need to have older people in my life. And before I was writing, I actually worked in pastoral ministry to women. And I found that to be so true. The generations need one another so much. And so that's, that's just something I, I, I cultivate personally in my life. I have young early 20s friends who like help me with all kinds of things. They give me a perspective on current events. They help me with my technical issues on computer, which is very important. I offer them boyfriend, husband, child advice. And then the older people, you know, I'm looking ahead. I, I want to know how to age gracefully. So I am searching for those women who are doing that well and trying to learn from their example. So it's just a lot of fun. Um, as far as the crafting, that is something else you will often find in my books. And I use it sometimes, you know, I've had a lot of books that were especially centered on quilting. And I love quilting. That is my primary fiber art myself. Um, but Sometimes people will say, oh, well, you know, the book you write about quilting. Well, I don't write books about quilting because if you wrote a book about quilting, that's a pattern book. Mm -hmm. And that's not what I do. I write books about relationships. And I have found that crafting is a really great way to bring a very diverse cast of characters together. These women probably wouldn't be friends if not for that moment. So it's a really... It, it feels organic and natural in my books that I can bring these very different characters into one room because they're doing this thing together. It's one of the few things where you can chat at the same time, like yes. make well, and, and chat and catch too, up. You know, it instantly gives you something to talk about, right? Mm -hmm. Sometimes we get into a new situation and if there's just people in a room, it's like, okay, tell the story of your life, go. Who's going to do that? Nobody's going to do that. It's so much safer to talk about this thing that you're knitting. Oh, and you know, and it's a hat for my nephew. And then you tell the story of your nephew and your sister. And, and suddenly you're, you're doing life together. But what started off is that you could talk about something kind of safe. And for me, fiber arts is it, but it can be anything, you know, guys can talk about like their car collectors or, or book clubs or whatever. So we talk about this thing and in the process of talking about that, we we'll really end up talking about ourselves. You had talked about, obviously you said you didn't live in Charleston, but you got the, the house picked out there. Um, what is your research process like in this particular book? You, you, you cover a little bit of uh, private adoptions. You've got uh, hoarding, historical architecture, um, food. What, 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 bring, what kind of research do you bring into, into that versus personal experience? Well, a lot of it is personal experience because I love food. <laughs> I, am, I am a pretty passionate home chef. 
And in fact, um, if you get on my website, I have a blog called Fiercely Marie on my Marie Bostwick website, and about half of the posts are food. So I love to cook, I love to eat, I love to share good food and share good recipes. And let me tell you, one of the big attractions for going to Charleston uh, is that I, I am convinced it has the, the largest per capita number of fabulous chefs in the nation. And I am very dedicated in my research. I wanted to make sure I got it right. And one night I made the great sacrifice of having dinner two times right back to back to trying to decide which restaurant I wanted to set the scene in. So I'm an author who's willing to go the extra mile. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> which, which one did you end up deciding on between the which two? Uh, actually, well, there were two. There was, there was a hamburger place and it was very good, but there was kind of a pizza place called Indaco across the street. And I ultimately went with that. that that's, uh, I believe we do touch a little bit on the pizza in there. And I, is, is that the one that you had? It is the pizza that I had. <laughs> yes, in fact, and the olives. Fabulous at the bar. So I was taking notes the whole time. So certainly I visited the site, but you know, when I don't know something about a topic, I do have to go and I have to do research. And I will say for me, and, and in some ways, you know, now that I'm thinking back, a lot of this book did start with the hoarding. I was kind of fascinated by this. And I had read a book, what was it called? I think some, I think I'm trying to remember now, I think it was called The History of Stuff, but it was about hoarding. And I ended up reading about four books about hoarders because I became fascinated that it wasn't what I thought it was that the process of hoarding very often is, is not as much about a lack of abundance as about the inability to make decisions about what to keep. Hoarders can't decide, and so they make no decision, and so they keep everything, which really became an interesting theme in the book. Um, at one point, I talked about her dealing, Celia dealing with her aunt's hoard that's been left behind, and, and a friend gives her the advice that she should think of her life as a museum and herself as the curator. So we all have to decide what to keep and what to cast away, and, and that was a big and important theme for me in this book. As somebody who's accused of holding on to things for, for longer than they need to, I can say we, for, for Christmas, I did a 23andMe kind of thing, and they come back and say that that's part of the Neanderthal within us all, and some of us just have more Neanderthal in us, and it's genetic. <laughs> I don't know if I think. Well, the other thing I was fascinated, too, was in some ways, hoarders are terribly creative. You know, I read a book where they were saying, okay, you know, here's this thing. What is it? And it's a paper cup. And you say, well, what can you do with this? And you're like, well, you can have a drink of water at it. Yes, but a hoarder would say, oh, you can have a drink of water at it. Or you could put a string between it and play telephone with your grandkids. Or you could use it to sprout, you know, lettuce plants in the spring. Or, I mean, the list would go on and on. And so because they see all these things, this object could be, they just don't want to get rid of it. And they also very often, I learned with hoarders, they hold on to things because they really intend to give them to other people. So in many ways, like they're like, oh, you know what? Sarah likes to garden and she might need those paper cups later to start her seeds. So I'm going to hold on to these paper cups and give them to her at some point. Of course, the point never arrives, but the intention is good. I didn't think about that before. Yeah, it's, it's really, it is a fascinating topic. I probably read, uh, there's not a ton of, of layperson literature on the topic, but I, I probably read four or five books on hoarding. 
throughout this research process, obviously you're doing a lot of internet searching. What is the strangest thing inside your search history right now? Oh my goodness. I'm trying to think. I don't know. That's that's a really tricky question. I feel like there's going to be a lot of dead air while I try to figure this out. Well, it's not the strangest, but other people would think of my constant research thing, and it has nothing to do with books. There's a website I adore called Little Vintage RV because I am obsessed by adorable little trailers. And I was obsessed by them long before they became like a thing. So I have had this obsession for... Um, you know, probably 15 or 20 years. And Is it kind uh, of the Airstreams or? Yeah, oh, I'd love an Airstream, but no, these tend to be some of the canned hammed ones, you know, they're not as fancy. I mean, an uh -huh. Airstream would be great, but I'm not setting my sights quite that high. Um, I really just like RVs of all kinds. And years ago, I actually did buy a 1997 Winnebago Rialta and I redid it and it was fabulous. I did it in turquoise with a pop of raspberry and gray. It was amazing, beautiful inside. Sadly, I learned do not buy a 20 year old motorhome. It is a money pit. Oh. I learned this when I was on the side of the road during a book tour where the firemen had to come rescue me. That's an adventure. That is that is a rabbit hole I've actually also fell, fell down myself. Uh, <laughs> my family and I were, were LARPers. And so we were looking at Vardos of all things, trying to, you know, because you'd pull up, have basically your own little personal house wherever you're camping out and be right. more comfortable than various cots that you were going to have to find. Yeah, yeah. Oh, no, I think it's a wonderful thing. And, you know, but it was, it was just some, I finally ended up selling it and, uh, my husband was such a good sport. I mean, cause it was my money. It was my project. It was my work. And I later I was like, Oh, that was so stupid of me. He says, no, honey, you really enjoyed it. And you know, the thing is you were going to do it. <laughs> and that's true. I was going to do it. And speaking of things you do, you um, often provide free quilt patterns and recipes on your website, mariebostwick.com. Um, for your book releases, have you decided what you're going to do for the restoration of Celia Fairchild? I have. We actually have a lot of stuff coming from, from this. It's on, not uploaded yet, but I do have a quilt pattern, which is inspired by the story. And uh, my good friend, Deb Tucker from Studio 180 Design, who is brilliant and a wonderful quilt designer. I make quilts, designing them is a little out of my purview. Um, she's done a, a beautiful quilt based on the classic uh, Carolina Lily block. And it's gonna be just wonderful. Also, a new friend of mine, Ron Strong, who is a knit and crochet designer and ambassador for Lion Brand Yarns, has created um, a knitted baby blanket that is, it's not the same as the one in the book, but it is kind of based on that. It's a color blocked blanket and I'm really excited about that. We're gonna have it soon. And then I will have a book club party kit that is, if, you're, if your book club is going to do this book, I have got your menus ready. So um, people will be able to download that soon. And it has got a little letter from me. It's got all the questions that go with the book. But then we have an entire menu of Southern-inspired dishes that uh, with beautiful photographs. So we're, we have cheese straws on there. We have a beautiful salad. We have a bacon and egg pizza. And we have key lime pie bars with a cornmeal crust. And they're fabulous. Oh, that sounds very, have you been able to taste test everything? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. So good. And also, this is part of your uh, Listen While You Stitch campaign. Can you tell us a little more about what else is happening? 
Well, I mean, I'm just, we're doing a lot of um, virtual events in different places. So we're certainly encouraging people, especially, you know, when we're doing things as podcasts or on Zoom, it's a great time to just be able to listen to the conversation on And sometimes if I occasionally read parts of the book and pull out your handwork, your knitting, your quilting, your crocheting, your embroidery, your whatever, and just stitch along while you, you know, learn about a great new book, which is kind of combining like, you know, if people would make up their own little mint julep while they were at home, it would be the perfect combination of all life's delights at one time. We are a, a library based in Panama City, Florida, and in your book, we we have a flashback to a period where a character ends up in Panama City, obviously. Uh, we won't get into details about how or why, but uh, what kind of, had you been to the area before? Uh, I have of... been to Panama City in the past. It's been a long time, um, but I, I, I will admit I had to, the locations I looked for, I had to do that via web because, you know, COVID's. So it would have been wonderful to go and I hope to return and visit those places and make sure I got it right. But it is remarkable how much information you can get on the internet, you know, complete with photographs and you read people's reviews and what they loved and what their favorite thing is at that particular little restaurant. And so you can get a pretty, um, a pretty spot on uh, picture of a particular place. So, oh, I had forgotten about that putt. Well, hi, Panama City. Well, I've been following your Instagram and your pup is so cute. Your little um, Cavalier oh. King Charles Spaniel. Yes. And I was wondering if the um, your dog inspired the dogs that are mentioned in the book. Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, as I'm sitting here talking to you, I'm sitting in my kitchen on a kitchen stool and she is right behind me. She goes absolutely everywhere that I go. She is extremely devoted to me. And she far too often wishes to express this devotion by licking me on the face, which I keep telling her is unnecessary. But I just adore her. Now, Celia doesn't start out loving dogs. I've always loved dogs. And, and Cavaliers are my particular um, breed. You know, this is my second Cavalier. And they are the ideal dog for a writer because... They just want to hang out with you. So, um, you know, she comes up with me. We, we make the commute across the driveway every day to my office over the garage. And she comes up and I give her a little chewy treat. And then she just hangs out. She lets me know when it's time for lunch. She gets down from the easy chair and walks over to my desk and scratches me on the leg and lets me know it's time for lunch break. And, you know, that's how we do our day. She's, she's a great little companion. In this particular novel, we we do a little bit of bouncing between uh, that first person omniscience kind of thing to a little bit of fourth wall breaking, uh, where where the narrator is directly talking to to us, the reader. How do you kind of balance the changing of the viewpoints and and the the narration of it? I guess you know this is one of those things that's tricky because I cannot really give you a good answer. I am not somebody who studied writing. I just wrote. And so I do what makes sense to me as a, as somebody reads voraciously, I know when something's working and when something is not working. And so um, I, I don't feel that writers need to necessarily be bound by rules. As long as when they're, they're breaking the rules, they know that that's what they're doing and they know why they are doing it. Um, I, in fact, in Florida, a few years back, 
I was teaching a workshop, which I hardly ever do because I know how to write, but I don't necessarily know how to tell you how to write. Um, but I was teaching a workshop and I was reading from different, you know, different writers to try and kind of make my points, you know, as an illustration. And I was reading part from one of my books, in fact, where I pop back and forth and point of view in all kinds of time. And this, this woman who was in the audience said, but you know, you break the, you do this, you break the wall, you go back and forth, you, you know, and that's against the rules. And I said, well, wh whose rules, who told you that? I said, you know, you can do it because it works. And then I pulled out, was it a room with a view? A classic, I think it was a room with a view, but it may not have been. And I pulled that out and I said, let's see how many times this very, very famous author popped from point of view. And it was four times. So I think this idea that one must be slavishly devoted to a particular point of view is, is a fairly new rule. And to my way of thinking, not particularly helpful. I'm sorry, I'm not good at short answers. <laughs> no, we, we appreciate the, the long okay. answers. It, it makes our job so much easier. And then I was gonna ask if you had any advice for anyone who's just starting writing, what would be your advice to them? I think my advice to them would be to spend more time writing itself than worrying about getting published which I know sounds very glib, I mean, and I get that, but I, I just find so often when I meet people who are just at the beginning of their writing journey, one of their earliest questions is like, so how am I gonna sell my book? And I'm like, well, first let's finish it. And then we, you can worry about that. The other thing I would say too, is like, take the time to get good at it. I actually wrote in a very focused way. I wrote a short story a month for three years um, and I was very serious about it. And then I spent four years on my first novel. And my first novel, I didn't go into it thinking I was gonna sell it. It was just a short story that kept getting longer and longer and longer. And about 70 pages in, I thought, oh dear me, it might be a book. And it ended up taking four years. Never at any point did I think about trying to submit my short stories or sell my short stories because I understood that I was trying to learn my craft. Richard Rohr wrote a wonderful, wonderful piece in Poets and Writers magazine many years ago called On Apprenticeship. And he talked about being a writer the same way you talk about being an apprentice glassblower. He said to consider yourself an apprentice. And he said, you know, there are no books out there called how to sell your first sad, pathetic attempts at glass blowing. <laughs> and, but unfortunately, if you tell people you're a writer, they're gonna ask you what you've sold as though that's what makes you a writer. What makes you a writer is the fact that you get up every day and you write and you do the hard work. And if it's not good, that's okay, because you learn something. And, and to go back to the, the glass blowing um, illustration that Rory used so beautifully, he said, you know, First, the apprentice glassblower just sweeps up the shop and then maybe they learn to create a really hot fire. And then they learn all about the tools and perhaps how to keep them oiled and in good working order. And then finally, somebody gives them a molten glob of glass and, and let's say, say, okay, well, we're gonna have you try and make a vase. Well, that first vase is gonna be dreadful and lumpy and misshapen and awful. And that's okay because you know what happens? They take that ugly, terrible vase, they smash it and they melt it down to make 
the next piece and the next piece will be better. And it's the same thing with your writing. Every dreadful piece you write is teaching you how to write a less dreadful piece. So take the time, enjoy your apprenticeship and take joy in the process. Cause honestly, the process of writing is the only part of it that you have any control over. You said that you, this wasn't, you know, you didn't start out to study to be a writer or anything of that nature. What was your plan A before you, you decided to do this? I'm not, I'm not really a planner. I mean, I was a mother, you know, I had three kids and I've done so many, I've done all kinds of different jobs. I tend to be someone who I have, I have taken the opportunities as they have come more than had like a really long-term plan. So I have done everything from, I've been a, 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 I I taught theater in my kids' Montessori school because that gave us a break on tuition. (laughs) I I have, uh, I did PR for political campaigns. I had my own event planning business. That was actually pretty successful for many years. Um, I worked as a scheduler for a United States Senator in Washington, DC. What are some of the, I've done so many things. Oh, I've, I've raised money for nonprofits. I've done, um, in Mexico City, I was the director of development for a large um, medical and housing mission in in Mexico City. Um, And I have been a women's pastor. (laughs) So, So I don't think there was like, I just wait to see what the next thing is coming over the bend. And for the last 15 years, it's been books. As a friend of mine says, specialization is for insects. Well, you know, what's beautiful about being an American, I love this statistic. Americans have an average of six different careers in their lives, which I think is great, right? So we get six chances to reinvent ourselves. And I'm very big on reinvention as if you've read any of my books, you know that. What has your writing practice been like during this this whole lockdown? I will tell you, this has really been a difficult time for me. I, I won't say I'm blocked but almost. It's been incredibly hard. I have been writing a lot, but I have not been content with the quality of what has been coming out thus far. Um, The book I am working on now, I know it can be good. Unfortunately, it is not yet good. It will be, but I actually did something I've, I've just not had to do in the past. I had to get an extension. And it was interesting when I, I talked to my editor and I felt terrible because, you know, I, I do try to behave in a very professional manner. And, and part of the, one of the first lessons of being a professional writer is you deliver on time. But I just, I said, I can do it, but it's going to be so terrible, you know? And of course your first draft is always terrible and I'm used to that, but this was a new level of terribleness. And I, I just said, I, and she was great. And she said, don't worry about it. And by the way, it's not just you. And the more I have talked to other writers, we're just very, I think we're distracted and confused. And, and it's, it's very difficult right now to tap into um, that best part of our creativity. So there is some comfort in knowing I'm not the only one. I'm also an artist and a librarian with the multiple identities. And a lot of my artist friends, it's the same thing. They, it's just like been months where they just cannot create. It just, you have to do something mindless and it's a hit or miss on what you can do. Yeah, I I, I do think 
I think there will be people when we come out of all this who actually, this turned out to be incredibly productive time. But I think mm -hmm. they'll be in the minority. I think a lot of us are really um, struggling. And of course, you know, we have, we have worries too. I mean, I have, uh, I'm a writer, but I, I still have a family to care for. So mm -hmm. I lost my dad during not, uh, well, I don't know if, honestly, I don't know what my dad died of. He died very suddenly. It well could have been COVID, but we certainly didn't have a test. I had to move my mother in with us for, for five months. Um, and right before all of this, my stepmother, who I'm very close to, suffered a major health event and, and is now confined to a care home for the rest of her life. So I've got a lot of caregiving mm -hmm. that I need to be doing too. And it's, it's a tough time. Celia's favorite thing to de-stress was watching Christmas movies. She loves Christmas movies. And I don't think it was Christmas time, correct? Nope, not at all. Celia watches okay. Christmas movies all year round. Yes, please share a little bit about that. <laughs> I just thought, I, I, you know, sometimes it's really good to have a character where there's some little quirky thing that just illuminates the essence of who they are. And I think the essence of who Celia is, is somebody who wants to believe that it's all going to turn out. And Christmas does that. It renews her faith in humanity because people, you know, at Christmas, even cranky old Ebenezer Scrooge turns out to be a good guy at the end. So I think it just taps into her essential faith in humanity, or at least the desire to have faith in humanity. You know, we can't do it all the time. So yeah, that's that's her thing. And, you know, I know a lot of people can relate to this because, and especially this last year, I don't know about you. I started watching Christmas movies like October 1st. I could not wait for Christmas. So I wanted as much Christmas as I could get as soon as I could get it. And I, and I think, you know, if you point to how popular the Hallmark channel has been this year, Celia is not the only one that feels like that. I have another movie-related question. I read that you wanted uh, the restoration of Celia Fairchild to be a little bit like a rom-com, which I thought was really successful, and I could totally see it on screen. But one of your titles, The Second Sister, was adapted into a 2018 Hallmark film. What was that experience like? It was such a thrill because, I mean, first of all, if you write a book, if you write like 10 books, you're going to end up getting somebody who's going to want to option your book. And that seems very exciting until you figure out that like anybody can option your book. It doesn't mean there's going to be a movie. And an option just essentially means they're giving you a little bit of money to not make a movie of your book and to prevent anybody else from making a movie of your book. And, you know, writers, we got to make a living. So it's like, cool, you take it. And so it had just been sitting there for a while. And then all of a sudden it was like, it was really it was happening. It was a happen, and I, and I thought maybe it was going to go well because Hallmark had renewed the option for my book. So that seemed like a good sign, you know, but still I had nothing. And this is actually a hilarious story. So one day I'm at home and my, my um, sparkly assistant sends me an email and says, have you seen this? And I looked at it and it was a, someone called Sleepy Kitty Paws and the avatar was a cat with a Santa hat on it. No idea who this was. And Sleepy Kitty Paws on Twitter had announced 
that the second sister was going into filming like the next week in Atlanta in a movie called Christmas Everlasting and that um, Tachan Ali was gonna be in it and Dondre Whitfield was gonna be in it and, um, and Patti LaBelle was gonna be in it. And I was like, really, what's going on? And so my assistant is like, is this real? I'm like, I have no idea. I don't know who Sleepy Kitty Paws is. So I zip it off to my agent and I'm like, hey, does Sleepy Kitty Paws know something we don't know? And she says, how odd, let me investigate. Within an hour, in fact, I found out what's happening and kind of like the people who were supposed to have told us this, like, oops, did we not tell you? <laughs> so, so anyway, I dropped everything and made plans to go because I wanted to be on the set. And it was, I have to say, one of the greatest days of my life. It really was. And um, one of the big moments for me is my publicist went along and they drove us out to the set and it was, you know, it's in Georgia and there was snow and they, we drove up to Celia's house and there was like this, this small city of people because it was a Hallmark Hall of Fame movie, which they put a lot of trouble into making those even more than even the normal Hallmark movies. And I was standing there and I started to tear up and somebody came up behind me and I don't know who it was and whispered in my ear, none of this would be happening if you hadn't written that beautiful book. And that was a pretty, you know, that was my hallmark moment right there, I gotta say. So, but getting to see how a movie is made and meeting the actors, it was just a great, a great, great thrill. And having grown up, like when I was a kid, the Hallmark Hall of Fame movie at Christmas was appointment television, you know, there wasn't cable, but, and so obviously it's different now, but more than 5 million people watched that movie based on my book on the day after the Thanksgiving weekend. So it was, it was a huge thrill. It's that sense of validation just goes a long way. Yep. 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 I mean, of course, they changed a lot of things. I really recommend, um, you know, I think they did a wonderful job with the movie, but they picked on one very small aspect, quite different. And I will say a, a, quite a bit darker than, um, you know, the second sister has some fairly dark themes and things happening. And I was honestly, I was surprised of all the books that I have written. That was the last one I would have thought that Hallmark would have would have wanted to make a movie out of, but they did. Just kind of touching on, on that part that you just said about how obviously you have your your idea of what the story is because you, you've, you've written a book and then when somebody else takes ownership of it, um, how do you, do you have any kind of involvement? Or do you just kind of take a hands-off approach of kind of thing where they are changing things that you have, have put in, into the world to kind well, of fit to their own vision? You have to, because that's what you agreed to. You know, when you signed that contract, I mean, I, there are probably people who could negotiate more artistic control, but honestly, there's lots of people that want to get their books made into movie. And particularly when you're talking about going to the small screen, um, you know, nobody's going to want to fuss with you too much if you're going to want to have, if you're not going to be willing to let go some of that control. I won't say that it wasn't in some ways difficult to open my hands, but I also know that, you know, Hallmark does a good job. And I, I pretty much knew what they were going to pick up on. Because like I said, I, I didn't think that this would be the one that they would exactly go with. I was honored that they saw what they saw in it. But I will, will remember a day when I was kind of, you know, oh, I don't know what are they good. And my husband, who is very wise and my very best advisor, 
put his hands gently on my shoulders, looked into my eyes and said, baby, the check cleared. And I thought, <laughs> yes, that is true. And then I just was like, that's right. I agreed to sell this property and they now get to do what they want to do with it. So uh, touching back on, on something else you mentioned where you were doing the glassblower analogy and, and having to ask for the extension on, on your current project. Um, obviously, it sounds like kind of you're going to you're taking that one, kind of smashing it and kind of reforging it into something else. Um, what is the editing process of that like for you? For, for this particular project or in- Or just in general. Um, I will say I have a very unusual pr process compared to other people's because in fact, my agent is deeply involved with my process. Um, of course I have my editor, but my agent, Liza Dawson, who I have been with for 10 years, um, she was an editor for 15 years before she became a literary agent. And in fact, when I was looking for new representation and went out and interviewed several different agents and all really good people, and I would have been in good hands with any of them, but she said a thing. She said, told me about her background. And then she said, I speak editor. And I thought, that's my girl. That's my girl. And we have gotten on very well. Now, I will say we have some knockdown drag out fights because she is the one who it is her job to deliver the bad news or to push me into places I don't always want to, to go in some ways. Um, I will say, for example, with Celia, I finished it. It felt really good. It felt really solid. I was very happy with it. But Liza read it and she really liked it too, but she wanted me to go farther. And we had not a fight, but certainly a very, a, a very pointed discussion. And at one point I said back to her, I don't write biography, <laughs> leave me alone. <laughs> and she, we ended the conversation. I let it sink a couple of days. And, you know, sometimes I do take a couple of days to take her criticism and mull it over. And I made one more run at it. And I will say that final run of this book that I had re-edited eight times, which is pretty standard for me. It did, in fact, my, my editor, uh, Lucia Macro, read the last one. She says, I can't tell you what it is. This book has the secret sauce. And she was right. And it's because Liza pushed me into going a little deeper into places I didn't feel necessarily comfortable with. Uh, what do you, in general, about how much of an, a book do you cut? Or do you start off with like 500 pages, get down to about 300? I mean, yeah, I don't, it's funny. I don't do it that way. I would say, so when I finish on my computer pages, it ends up being pretty consistently like 410. But along the way, I have probably ended up writing and cutting at least 200 pages of other stuff. I, I am from the school, like write everything, just spill it out on the page. It's much easier to take it away than add it in. So I end up doing a lot of that, but I, but I do frequently kind of edit as I go along. So a lot of times I'll, you know, or sometimes, I mean, I'll get to that first round and I'll say, well, that's a stupid chapter and it will just go away. You know, it'll just like, I don't know what was on my mind that day. And you wish you could see ahead of time like it would, I would write so much faster if I could just figure out what's going to end up on the cutting floor, but I don't seem to be able to do that. 
I was curious a little bit about, because we're not, we can't really share so much because you have so many um, plot twists, so plot everyone twists. just needs to read it. Um, but I was curious on how you came up with your title, because restoration, the term restoration has kind of multiple meanings. And that honestly was when I came up with that title, it really cemented the themes of the book for me. So in some ways, the title, in fact, really drove the plot in many, many ways. I think restoration is something that everybody is doing all the time. And I think part of the business of, of becoming a successful adult is finding those pieces of yourself that you kind of left on the wayside and embracing your whole history, the good, the bad, the ugly, because sometimes, you know, the stuff, we don't want to think about the bad things that happened in our life, but the bad things are part of what shaped us. And they are the lessons that helped us make, uh, become the people we are and, and hopefully helped us develop a sense of resiliency and purpose and self-awareness. So um, restoration is very big with me. Also, I am, you know, I am a person of faith. My faith is very important to me. So restoration in my Christian tradition is something that plays out in my, in my lifetime and in how I try to conduct my personal life too. So those are the things I'm interested in writing about. We are obviously a, a library-based podcast. So how have libraries influenced your life? Oh, hugely, hugely, hugely. I have a good story. Again, I'm not gonna be able to do the short answer. I'm so sorry. But um, in fact, one of my claims to fame is that at least at that point, I was the youngest person to ever have her own library card at the Lane County Library in Eugene, Oregon. Because back in the day to have your own library card, you had to be able to write your own first and last name. And so I practiced this very assiduously because I knew that if I had my own library card and I could have access to the books I wanted when I wanted them, the world would be my oyster and that nobody would ever be able to lie to me without my permission again, because the truth was there in the library if only I was to seek it out. So I did this thing. My mother came home when I had done it and I made her take me to the library and get me my card. I was three years old. We, we don't have the same rules and regulations here. I've often joked if somebody went into labor in the middle of the lobby, by the time that the baby came out, I would have a library card in their hand. Yeah, no, things have changed, <laughs> I'm sure. But the other thing too, librarians were always really good to me. They knew, you know, if you're a library, like if you work in the children's section, you know when the book nerd walks in. I mean, we just, it exudes from us. My best friends were books. I did not need people with skin on because I had books. And my friends in the pages were so much more interesting than anyone I knew. But I will say back then in the day, I was forever sneaking over to the adult section and the librarians were forever having to like bring me back. But I was pretty sure that's where the cool books were, was not in the kids section. I, I, I read Clockwork Orange at the age of 12. I didn't understand it, but I read it. I could read the words and I felt pretty cool reading it because of course it was absolutely forbidden. Picking up on that thread, uh, what are you reading, watching right now? Any recommendations for us? You know, I just, I've, I've been reading two historical fiction novels that have really set in my mind recent. I've actually gone through kind of a dry desert. It's terrible that I've had a lot of books that I picked up and just ended up not liking, which is odd. 
but I just finished uh, Susan Meisner's newest, The Nature of Fragile Things, set in um, kind of the action happens a lot during the 1906, I think it is, San Francisco earthquake. It's a tragic book, but Sophie is a really strong and intriguing character who, who has a, I think a good morality to her, but it's, it's, um, you know, it's a very satisfying ending. And then another book, similarly, strong characters, tragic circumstances, um, the children's blizzard by Melanie Benjamin. And I really, I really liked that book. I thought, um, you know, I know, I know Melanie and she just, some of the little touches she put in there were so vivid that I actually, like I ended up, you know, writing her a note and saying, oh, that thing that she did that this, I was like, that was so perfect. That was like the perfect illustration. So I thought that was wonderful too. The editor, oh, who wrote that? It's a gentleman and the name is gone, but the book is called The Editor and it's about a writer who ends up finally getting his first book published and his publisher ends up to be Jackie Onassis. And what sparkling, clever, tight, fabulous dialogue in that book. Plus what an intrigue, like what? And the reactions that the character had when he goes into this meeting not knowing that the person who wants to talk to him about publishing his book is in fact, you know, Jackie Kennedy Onassis. And the way he reacted, totally uncool, was exactly the way I would have reacted. So there was a lot of humor and, but just great, great, great dialogue in that book. Uh, looks like that was Stephen Rowley. Thank you. Yes. You, you started touching on historical fiction and you have written some historical fiction as well. Obviously th this particular book is going to be more pure fiction. Which do you like better to doing? You know, I, I it just, uh, I like them both. I wrote, my first three novels were works of World War II historical fiction. I liked writing about the period between the wars a great deal. I enjoyed that, but I will say you know, now I write about a book a year and writing historical fiction required about six months of research before I could ever start to type. So that was really challenging. And also too, when I finished those first three books, which, you know, they were reasonably well received. Uh, my very first book, Fields of Gold, was a finalist for the Oklahoma Book Award, which is pretty good considering I'm not from Oklahoma. So I was, you know, and it was my very first book. So I didn't win or anything, but still one appreciates the mention. And it was fascinating. You really do get into those, the characters and the settings in a, in a way that's different than writing contemporary fiction. But I just felt like I'd said kind of what I had to say about those things in that, that period of, of time. Um, I will say, I keep looking for historical fiction topics that I would like to explore. I, you know, I've always got an eye out. And so it may happen again. And recently, this was a very different little project. Um, but I went back to World War II and I wrote a little novella, which uh, is called Letters to PJ. But I wrote it, you're not going to find it anywhere. And the reason you're not going to find it anywhere is because I wrote it to go with a quilt block of the month program. And it was a, a very big quilt shop in Texas wrote to me and they said, hey, we want to do this. We got this idea. We want to do the quilt block by your friend, Deb Tucker, and the book by you. And then it was such fun. Deb and I worked with a designer to get the fabric created. And then I, 
you know, at first this seemed like kind of crazy to me, but I said, well, what do you want me to write about? And the lady who owned the quilt shop, Ditch in Heaven in Texas said, I don't care. And I said, well, could I set it in World War II? And she said, I don't care. And I thought, okay, I can, I can do this. I can make time because it, it was only novella. So it was like, I can make time in my schedule. Um, and it was fun. So I got to go back to World War II and it's just, it's much more of a, it's a, cause it's a novella. It's a very straightforward, a little bit more of a romance, but about, you know, and I, I wanted to do it because my mother-in-law worked in the Kaiser shipyards in Vancouver, Washington when, during the war. And so I knew a little bit about that period. And so that's where I kind of decided to set it in the Portland, Vancouver area during the war about um, the women who were helping to build the ships. So it was kind of fun. Uh, expanding on that, because obviously there's there's a balance in this particular book. It's it's more, as, as we specified earlier, a little bit of a rant to comedy. How do you find that balance between tone and humor in, in your writing? Yeah, I think it's very important because, I mean, look, I love a good rom-com, but I, and, and, and it is not a small thing to entertain people. Um, but I want people to think too. And I want them to have some take-home value with the book. So that comes in in some of the, some of the really universal themes. Yes, it's wonderful to find love, but even though this is a rom-com, I mean, the most important question in this book is not whether or not Celia falls in love with a guy. Um, that is almost never the primary, I mean, I can't, I can maybe think out of my 19 books, I can maybe think of two or three where the most important dramatic question was the hero and heroine getting together. This so one, I think this one definitely felt more like a falling in love with herself kind of thing. Yes, yes. And, and I think that's important because I'm a firm believer that until you like, until you love yourself, you can't love somebody else. Um, you know, no other we can love someone, but no other human being can fill our holes for us. That is an impossible task to lay upon somebody else and something that they will absolutely end up failing at, which is really not fair. So yeah, there, there are much larger themes here about um, you know, life and friendship and forgiveness. And as I had said, restoration, embracing the whole of your history and what you learn for it from it, the things we choose to keep, the things we decide to um, put away, the, the debts we choose to, to, to declare paid in full. And so those are themes that go, and creativity is a big theme with me. I think creativity is something we all need in our lives. And there are different ways of finding it, but I think it's, it's part of finding a happy and balanced life. So all of that's in there, but hopefully um, those lessons come home a little e more easily if I can make somebody laugh along the way, because nobody likes to be told what to do. I don't, do you? As soon as you tell me what to do, I'm gonna to try to do the opposite. I'm a chaos bringer. Thank you, yes, yes. But that's why fiction is so powerful, right? I mean, there's a whole genre of self-help books. And I guess if you're actually totally in the, in the business of looking for answers, self-help is a great thing. But most of us are not at that place. And yet there are changes we need to make. Well, if, if we go back to the premise that nobody likes to be lectured at, I don't, you don't, hardly anyone does, how we really can change is by seeing someone we admire who's doing it well, or maybe someone we admire or at least relate to that's doing it not well. And so we can make choices. And I have had the privilege over and over during my career of 
getting to be the person who wrote the book who fell and that book fell into the hands of the right person moment at the very moment they needed it most. Um, you know, I've, I've had that letter over and over in my career from the person who said, I hadn't talked to my sister in 20 years, but after I finished your book, I picked up the phone and now we're going to get together for coffee or, or whatever, or, you know, I just was stuck in the pain after my divorce. And after reading your book, I finally found the courage to go on. Fiction is powerful and getting to write it is a privilege. You're going to make me cry. <laughs> I teared up a little bit on that one. My one question is, um, which authors influenced you most? Hmm. I would say so many. It's really hard to say. Well, certainly Dickens. Um, very much because Dickens had that gift of having all these separate storylines and then moving them slow. Like it's like all these characters are standing in a big circle facing each other, but they're a million miles apart. And as the, as the story goes along, they move closer and closer and closer. And as they do, you see the relationships and how, and, and the things he does to make those relationships are so ridiculous, but you he's so good at it that you're just like, oh yeah, totally that could happen. You know, you buy it. So certainly that also, and also Dickens had always an underlying humor, but while also delivering really important um, moral lessons. And I would say, I, I feel the same way about Jane Austen, Anthony Trollope. A lot of the British writers of that particular Victorian period did that really, really, really well. Um, and this sounds silly, but somebody who influenced me profoundly was, was Laura Ingalls Wilder because her prose, her descriptions were just so straightforward and so simple. And so I think that taught me a lot about it's better to use one right word than 10 that are almost right. And, and she never talked down to her audience, which I really appreciated, especially as a child. Uh, it, it sounds goofy, but I still do this. One Saturday a year, I sit down on the couch and I read all of the little house books, the entire series in one day from back to back, because there are still things to be learned from that. And I will say, I've learned a lot from my sister authors who were a little farther up on the food chain than I was, who helped me along the way. My good friends, you know, Debbie Maycumber took me under her, her wing and kind of has been a good sounding board. Robin Carr, I've just learned a lot from um, the way she approaches writing. And like so many, you know, that's that's one of the great things of finally being published is like you, you are welcomed into this sorority and female writers at least, and most of my, my writing friends are women, are so generous with one another. And so that's been great. And it's been a good example to me to try and be generous to the next generation that's that's coming behind me because there is not one thing I can do for those very famous friends of mine. So the only way I can pay it forward is really to pay it backwards to the people who are next in line. My last question is, is there anything else you would like to share with our listeners? Oh, well, I, I just thank you all for, and I hope you'll read the book. Um, and uh, I'm sure they'll be able to find 
many, many copies at the library and you will make sure that there is never, ever a wait list because that's dreadful. Also too, if you'd like to know more, yeah, go over to my, my website, mariebostrick.com. There's lots of goodies there for you and check out my blog, especially if you like to cook. We really appreciated chatting with you. Thank Very much you. So. There were great, insightful questions. I enjoyed it. I hope <laughs> Thank you. someday if I get to Panama City. I know. Just let me know. I can, yeah. I can make something oh. happen. Thank you so much, Marie, for joining us at BCPL Unstacked. Copies of The Restoration of Zelia Fairchild will be in the library collection for listeners who are looking for their next read. It can also be purchased through your favorite bookstore and online vendors. Stay safe and read, my friend. It's good for you. Bye. Bye.